Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll discuss Manchester City's brilliant win over Real Madrid in the Champions League semi-finals, which means they've booked a place in Istanbul where they'll face Inter Milan. The questions are over how City became this good and whether Inter will provide strong opposition in that final. We'll also talk about Ivan Toni's eight-month ban the breaches of the FA betting rules. Have they been too harsh on him? We'll also look back on the championship playoff semi-finals as Coventry and Luton book a place at Wembley. This is The Game. Hello, welcome back to The Game podcast with myself, Hugh Wizencroft, uh, sitting in Slough alongside Tom Orner, who's just got back from Milan, Ian Hawkey, who's out in Barcelona, Gregor Robertson, who's in Amsterdam on his way to see Alkmaar take on West Ham tonight. It is a, uh, well, we're, we're, we're dotted around. Obviously, I've drawn the short straw, but there you go. Um, listen, there's plenty for us to discuss. We will begin with what I think was one of the most magnificent performances that we have seen from an English club in Europe. It was a joint record biggest defeat for Real Madrid in the Champions League. They were dumped out of the semi-finals after City produced a 4-0 victory in front of their own fans at the Etihad in what was a sumptuous performance. City will now play Inter Milan in the final on the 10th of June as they look to win the Champions League for the first time. It is their second time in a Champions League final. The treble is still on for them. One victory away uh, from winning both the Premier League and the FA Cup. And it could be one of the most memorable seasons, the most memorable season in their history, but it was probably one of the most memorable victories in their history as well. They were brilliant from start to finish. Um, Gregor, I'll start with you on this one. Um, and I think we'll get to what has produced a City team that is this great in a few moments' time, but purely from a footballing as aspect. Um, I heard Jack Grealish say this morning, you know, he never envisaged a 4-0 win in a, in a million years. The way that they played, I mean, they, they look like one of the best teams we've ever seen, really. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of reading the reaction this morning, there's there are kind of questions of beginning to be raised about whether this side could kind of match Guardiola's Barcelona team. And, it, you know, that would have seemed really outlandish until I think this performance. But actually, they are, there is kind of beginning to emerge a sort of degree of dominance and control 
both kind of with and without the ball that I don't think we've really seen from Manchester City before. And it's it's remarkable to watch dominated possession in terms of like percentage of the ball. It's the way that they kind of they move the ball to to just to manipulate uh, the opposition's movement and and kind of open up little channels of space. They did that for Bernardo Silva to get in between the fullback and centre half for the second goal. They did that when. Jack Grealish had the ball out on the left uh, for for Silva's second goal. He kind of played it back to Aki, and then that, and then Kamavinga followed Silva back across, and it just opened up a channel of space. He gave it back to Grealish, and then he was off. It's like just little movements of possession to open space. That's kind of it's just magnificent to watch. Um, and some of the statistics as well from, from the game, just reading them this morning, were just remarkable. Like when City scored the first goal, they'd completed 196 passes to Madrid's 30. Um, it took Real Madrid 24 minutes to complete the first pass in City's half. <laughs> uh, Ruben Diaz was the only man, City outfield player, not to have a shot in the first half. It was just dominance on like a uh, kind of previously unseen level against Real Madrid, really. So, um, yeah, they look, they look like they are. It's going to take something pretty... Pretty surprising for them not to go in and win the treble now. Yeah, took 24 minutes for Real Madrid to complete a pass in Manchester City's half last night. It was complete and utter dominance. Um, And there are so many aspects that we can talk about, Ian, but I think I I do want to ask you about the point that Gregor raised there, you know, possibilities that this could be Guardiola's greatest ever side. Um, I mean, maybe they could surpass them. They'd have to win, you know, another Champions League, at least one more after this. But um, surely he has done something different now to get this out of Manchester City. It's been building for some time. You know, uh, well, I, I don't want to quote Patrick um, Patrice Evra, but um, listening to him on TV last night saying he was having a bit of a back and forth with a Manchester City fan because he said that last year they'd S themselves, if you know what I mean. Um, you know, they have developed, they have matured, they are now the finished article, and we saw that last night. What 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 difference has Guardiola made to the team this season? Well, actually, I mean, uh, 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 without without harping too much on Patrice Evra, um, what Guardiola was saying, certainly to the the Spanish media last night, was was also a bit anatomical. He was saying that they've had a stomachache for for the last year since the the turnaround in Madrid in the semi final uh, last season, and um, and now he. Now, now they felt it was cured. So, you know, I think, I think, I think there was a um, an itch to scratch there to make up for throwing things away. Really, at at, at the same stage um, a year ago. Um, uh, what he's, I mean, the comparison with with uh, his Barcelona team of what two thousand and nine to two thousand and twelve is, yeah, I think it's, I don't, I think it's, it's relevant. But these are two teams in their own context uh, this city team is better suited to the premier league clearly it is far more physical uh, the distinctive thing about that barcelona team was that you know there was there was a lot of little scurriers in it and they played very very elegant football um, and of course they had messi so that's always going to be it's always going to be the comparison that's made a, a team with messi has got has got something very, very special and is is hard to uh, to match up with. But you know, this team has has Holland and it has um, 
as Gregor pointed out, this this astonishing control. Um, I thought Rodri was just superb last night in you know both on the ball and off the ball. And um, if you're looking for things that Guardiola has done, the the development of Rodri, I think, would be would be a really outstanding thing. Um, I mean, one point you might make is that part of the joy of his great Barcelona team was that so much of it was homegrown, you know, seven or eight products of the academy, typically in the 11 at their peak. Um, I don't think uh, Foden came on last night, but uh, otherwise it was an entirely imported City team, I think, that started the game. So that's a bit different. But, you know, that's that's also skillful recruitment and obviously very, very moneyed recruitment. What's been key to the transformation for you, Tom? Well, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, in psychologically, uh, I think we've all sort of felt that City have been in this ballpark now for a few years. You know, they've, Guardiola's been saying himself, you know, that every year they essentially just have to have to put themselves in, in position, I think is the phrase he always uses, you know, to get to that kind of latter stage where the margins are always, you know, quite fine. But I think they've now got to the point where, you know, eventually <laughs> it's inevitability that this City team, with all the players they have, with the coach they have, with the resources they have, it's no surprise to me that that suddenly you know they are going to win this tournament. You know, and that's nothing against Inter Milan, but I think they're now obviously huge favourites in the final. I mean, you know, Haaland's definitely added an extra dimension. There's there's no doubt about that. But you know, I mean, it's nothing to take away from the achievement of of Guardiola and this team. But I do think, for me personally, you know, there's always a kind of an asterisk. There's always a sort of slightly mixed feelings about this Manchester City side. And if we're comparing it to, for example, you know, the great teams that, that we've seen in the last kind of couple of decades. And that Barcelona one is a very pointed example, in my opinion, because obviously Guardiola is in charge of both teams, but there's just a very different feel, I think, to both sides. As Ian points out, you know, the Barca side, you know, Messi, Xavi, Iniesta all came through the, all came through La Masia. They played obviously an incredible style of football, but it, it felt so much more organic. You know, I think this the city team, we can't get away from the fact that it's it's essentially manufactured. You know, it's a it's it's a side that that it, that comes from an inevitability of the backing of of being run by Abu Dhabi, by being run by a state. There's there's no romanticism here, and that's not to to say it's not an incredible team. It's not to say that Kyle Walker didn't play brilliantly against Vinicius Junior, or that Kevin De Bruyne isn't having a fantastic end of the season. It's, you know, all of that in itself is, is true. But I think if we talk about you know judging Manchester City as a whole, you know, as a comparing them to the other kind of great sides, you have to take all that into account. Um, Barcelona in 2012 played a team full, you know, 11 out of 11 La Masia graduates. You know, last night City didn't start with one. Um, and whether that means anything to you, I think depends on on your view of football and, and your your take as a fan. But I think it all has to be all has to be brought into the mix. You know, it, it's a fantastic achievement for them to get to the final. I think they'll win it. They might even win the treble. Um, but your reaction as a fan emotionally, I think, always kind of carries this slight um, this slight caveat. Ian, Gregor, I don't know which one of you wants to pick up really on that. Um, and whether we should throw ourselves so soon into that debate. Tom's clearly trying to drag us into it. Tom, you naughty boy. But, um, <laughs> y- y- you know, it is an interesting point to raise and it's a, a clearly a very important point to raise about how much we revel in Manchester City's quality, which is obviously undeniable. Um, 
but but you know the history books might reflect on that their brilliance as a football team more so than what brought them here and and we may then wonder if that is is good for the game good for our country good for european football whatever it it might be um well, just what what are your feelings really um well um it, it, i think there are two things here there's the there's the providence um of the money um which um you know when and unless it's regulated uh there's not a lot we can do about it um you know cities cities financial actions are being looked at at the moment um uh the other thing is 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 whether you want um you know you want you want a balanced competition um, um you know the the lure of european competition the reason the champions league is the is the elite watch for for club football everywhere is 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 because because there's there's difference um because teams from different places who don't come across each other as much as they do domestically pose new problems for for one another um and it it depends on having it depends on having a balance it depends on having uh, a healthy competition um and if we get to a stage where as would be feared by the president of real madrid the president of barcelona um club owners in italy uh where the distinction between the the state funded clubs and the rest is so great that 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 healthy competition ceases to exist i think then, then we do have a genuine problem um so you know you want you want you want football to work as a ideally as a you know a, an international whole where uh where there is there is a balance of ability and there's fluctuation and you know things change from season to season part of the beauty of the champions league until what seven years ago was that it was really really very difficult to retain so you had new winners every year um if city carry on like this and you know there's every reason to expect they might you know you can see this not just being an absolutely brilliant historic season but the but the first of many where where they monopolize trophies um and while while we will undoubtedly enjoy watching that because they play beautiful football um and you know they they raise standards um if they are the only team maintaining that standard then 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 i think it might become a bit wearing can can i quickly ask in whether you have seen that conversation picked up in that way in Spain, because I did think, and, and and Tom is right, those thoughts still came to my mind while I was watching the game last night about, you know, how we got to this point with a team like Manchester City who are playing in their 12th season ever in the European Cup, and they've just beaten a team who's won it 14 times, 4-0. But, um, but ultimately, it was an interesting juxtaposition to see them play against Real Madrid, who, of course, let's be honest, with their relationship with the Spanish banks over history... Um, have maybe had things their own way as well, hoarding players in the 1950s in particular, not allowing them to leave the country in some very famous cases as well. Um, you know, we don't reflect on on Real Madrid as, as having had those advantages. Maybe it's just because the education around things like sports washing in the current day um, is far more significant than it was back then. I don't know, but I wondered whether instantly in Spain they would pick up on that or whether there was a point I was watching the game and I just thought oh my word Real Madrid are going to get absolutely torn to shreds 
by the media in Spain after this. You know, I, I, I saw it only as a football conversation at that point when I was watching the game. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, um, within the last 24 hours, we haven't yet uh, got on to um, how these institutions are funded. I mean, you, you make a you make a good point, um, which is just the right size of what a battery, I think, um, just, um, you know, uh, football clubs, um, popular football clubs get their leverage in all sorts of ways. Um, and you're right, you know, the... the uh, you can you can go to banks and 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 get big loans if you are a powerful institution with a certain cachet in your community, and they will lend you the money and the terms on which you have to pay it back are between you and them. So yeah, I mean all all clubs have different ways of of, of raising finance, and um, we might you know we might question all of them, and that's you know that's what financial fair play is supposed to have a look at. Um, it is, of course, applied in different ways in different countries. Uh, so so it is complicated. Um, but uh, in answer to your question, it, it, is this concern raised particularly in Spain? Yes, it is. I mean, that was that was the justification, one of the justifications for the Super League, wasn't it? That, that um, uh, clubs with different models have to be able to compete on an even playing surface with clubs which which have um, funding from from particularly Gulf states, um, and the Super League was aspiring uh, to try and you know to try and put them put them on the same level um, as clubs like Real Madrid and Barcelona, which are to a great extent technically fan owned, so they don't you know they they can't be taken over by by an outside entity um and and yes they think they think that's a little unfair what do you think gregor is it is it fair that we enter this conversation so soon after a magnificent performance where you know for those city fans in particular you know the brilliance of their team should be at at the fore um and and they were they were brilliant so where football is headed you know i'm going to newcastle united tonight who knows who might be the next owners of Manchester United or Liverpool. We've seen Paris Saint-Germain already in other clubs, Chelsea, you know, owned by people who had probably very likely ulterior motives to just wanting to own a football club. Um, if that's the way that, that football has gone, how, how fair is it that we reflect on Manchester City in this way? I, I, I don't think it matters if it's fair. It's, it's what's happening and it's what... Um... No, there's clearly. I think there's a there's a quite a good balance. I've, I was struck by the kind of re- reaction last night on, you know, in by newspapers, by social media. I saw you know, um, I saw a tweet saying that Guardiola's side are unbeaten in 23 games in all competitions, and journalist Adam Crafton quickly said, "They've not lost a match since being charged 115 times by the Premier League." Like, <laughs> you know, there are there are it's. We can we can take great delight and pleasure from watching this Manchester City team, and I'm sure we all did last night. But their their uh, their funding, their the the club's owners, the club's owners, um, they are the reason why um, this whatever Guardiola and Manchester City achieve will never be viewed in the same way as as what he achieved at Barcelona. Um, and look, Manchester City fans can can talk about whether they think that's fair or not but that's just the reality of it i don't think fairness comes into it that's 
that's that's the way it should be. Should we though? Maybe Tommy, you can answer this. I know your views, but should we be talking more about the football? Because Manchester City, like I say, they're a brilliant team. They could go on to be a dynasty, as Ian, Ian remarked on. Um, and ultimately, the more trophies, the more success there is, I think the less the conversation, as we've already seen with, with other clubs, um, is, is at the top billing. I think off the back of the World Cup in Qatar, we're acute to this. Journalists have been writing more about it. They've been, if you like, had the fingers pointed, you know, especially over the Newcastle takeover. You haven't said this much about City. You never said it really about Chelsea. I think all of those journalists did. But I think now it's incumbent on them to continue to write or continue to ask the questions about that relevant topic. And so maybe it's, it's you know, it's basically given more coverage now. Um, you know, if this goes on, this is what five, if you know, it's going to be, I think, five Premier Leagues in six seasons. Um, I think the fans, they definitely reflect on the money. Where's it all come from? Where were Man City, you know, not too long ago? But if it's a club like Manchester United in the next decade, if they get state ownership, if they are winning trophies, you know, they, they might, their fans might claim, well, we were always a big club, you know, we were always winning trophies, you know, this made no difference. Then how much would we reflect on it? if it were Manchester United and therefore I, I might feel like the City fans can feel aggrieved. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I actually think that kind of the hatred, I think City fans often feel like they are being, you know, they, they feel victimised and that they're, they're getting unfair criticism. I actually think people don't hate City. People don't, um, there isn't the same kind of dislike of Manchester City as there was of, of Manchester United, for example, in the 90s um, or in Spain of, of Real Madrid, for example. I think because people, I mean, apart from anything else, they're, they're quite a useful blocker, you know. I mean, I, I've I've heard you know various from various angles this season. I mean, in Milan, AC Milan fans were were delighted that you know that they're now going to be Inter Milan and now play Manchester City in the final. AC Milan fans are now City fans. Um, Spurs fans have been City fans in most of this season because they prevent Arsenal from winning the title. Barcelona fans were very much City fans last night because they prevent Real Madrid from winning the Champions League. Uh, Liverpool fans are going to be Manchester City fans in, in, in the FA Cup final because, you know, they don't want them to Manchester United to win the FA Cup. Most fans of other clubs are actually strangely, I think, quite kind of almost comfortable with Manchester City winning everything because they sort of, they act as a very useful uh, blocker on their rivals winning the, winning the trophies. People don't have a kind of like a, a fundamental hatred of City. It's just an indifference. It's, 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 it's a numbness. It's a feeling of as I said before, of inevitability, that, that people just think, well, this is just obvious, it's going to happen eventually, you know, and, and whether that's good for the game or not, you know, I personally don't think it is, because I think it, it, it goes, you know, only in one direction, that ultimately you end up stretching the game vertically so that only the kind of very elite can challenge Manchester City, and it brings us back to that sort of Arsenal argument this season, how incredible they had to play to even push City to the last few games. Um you know, I mean, is it fair? I don't. I agree with Gregor. I don't think it matters. You know, I think it's important the debate is had. If anything, City, I think, had a fairly easy ride because they were so early in this process. When Abu Dhabi took over Manchester City, there wasn't the same awareness as there is now. You know, I mean, that that was the case. It was it was a bit of a, it was the first one almost. It was almost like people weren't aware of the implications of what was going to happen long term. But now, you know, we've had Newcastle. We've had. Uh, the Qatar World Cup, we've got now Manchester United perhaps being taken over by Qatar as well. You know, this is now obviously, you know, very much more than a, than a one-off. Um, so it's it's right that, that the football gets talked about and it's right that the politics gets talked about very much alongside that. You know, I think City have had plaudits. People do talk about 
uh, what a great team this is. I don't think you know that's ignored, but I think it is very important that when these things happen, and particularly when we start, you know, in this debate came up in this podcast because we were talking about you know comparing them to the great sides, the great club sides in history. And I think when you have those kinds of debates, you always have to to take in the context as well. I think that's fair and I think it's it's correct. I'll take it back to the football. Um, but I understand everything that you're all saying really about um, having some kind of measure in it and make sure we're talking about the topics, which I, I do think we've, we've done. So I will take it back to the football very quickly, Gregor, just to say that I thought this was the best performance by Manchester City under Guardiola. Uh, City fans may feel differently on that, but um, I thought they were so incredibly dominant against the side, which is the defending champions of the European Cup um, with so much vast experience and talent in their side who could not breathe out on the pitch at the Etihad, who had absolutely no space, no time to work. Um, absolutely stifled so many of the best players on earth and um yeah you know for those of us that love football it was obviously a joy to watch um I don't even know if they will reach this heights as in you know 90 minutes of this level again because I think Real Madrid brought something out of them uh on the night over the two legs in terms of needing to raise their level knowing that they had to get to such a higher level to get past the Real Madrid side with so much talent and so much nous in the competition. And um, I just wondered your thoughts on, you know, for me, yes, one of Manchester City's best, but almost, I think, you know, I, I tried to wrap my brains about probably the best performance that we've seen, most dominant performance that we've seen from an English club in the Champions League of late. I can't think of another that surpasses it. It was that good. Yeah, I think you only have to take it from someone like Henry Winter who's covered most of the the biggest games uh, English clubs have been involved in for, for many a year and he said it was probably the best performance he's seen by an English team in Europe. Martin Samuel writing in the Times this morning saying that it was a privilege to be there because you know someone else who's been covered all the all the biggest games for you know a couple of decades or more. Um, it just there was clearly a, a remarkable energy inside the Etihad last night and, and it was you could see it in, in Guardiola as well he was in a, kind of almost in a frenzied state on the touchline you know throwing his hands in the air and any sort of almost any backward step he was he seemed to be he seemed to be angry about and and, and letting his players know about that um, and when you combine that energy with City's control in possession you know it's good luck to anyone that they face basically because they're in that sort of heightened state and their sort of technical mastery of the ball and their their ability to just continue probing to open space and you know at, at pace though um open little channels for for runners to 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 exploit you know working their combinations around the penalty area when they're doing that when they have the energy you know uh those two things together make them probably the best team in Europe, so um, they were they were extraordinary, and you know, it's going to be very interesting to see the to see the game against Inter Milan because you know they're clearly the clear clear favourites, but Milan uh, Inter have have been quite good at kind of breaking up play, and they've been tactically very smart in their in uh, in their two two ties against AC Milan. So 
it will be interesting, but they're obviously clear favourites. And I think if they come anywhere near that sort of level of performance, then the, the trophy is theirs. Let's turn our attentions then to events uh, in Milan. It was Inter who came through against their city rivals, Milan. Uh, by a goal to nil, Lautaro Martinez uh, with a decisive one on the night, but obviously not in the tie. 3-0 on aggregate. Um, listen, I saw an interesting stat, which maybe feeds into some of what we're saying about the financial dominance in England. Um, that the Inter Milan have spent less on transfers in the last five years than Brighton and Hove Albion. So really, we should be regarding them reaching the Champions League final as something rather incredible, shouldn't we? What was it like being there at the game, Tom? And um, how impressed are you by Inter Milan? I mean, it was an amazing atmosphere. I think I was there for the second leg and we had uh, Owen Schlott there for the first leg. And I think both matches, speaking to people who were there last week as well, you know, uh, the atmosphere was was incredible. It was definitely one of the noisiest uh, matches I've ever ever covered. Um, just the, the sense of occasion was, was really um, obvious, you know, and, and it, was, it was to have a Milan derby as a as a Champions League semi-final, I think, was the importance for everyone, all the fans in the city was was uh, very much part of the of the match. And in fact, it kind of felt almost more important than the football in in some ways, which was good, but you know, not not you know, absolutely first rate. I mean, I think you know, this was three hours of of, of football over two legs, but essentially the tie was won in the first eleven minutes. You know, and I think Inter showed in the first match that they can be they can be ruthless. Um, they can be clinical. They've got, you know, if, if Manchester City in the final have the kind of one-man juggernaut, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Erling Haaland, you know, into kind of have the Velociraptors, if you like, the kind of the four-man band of, you know, Jekko, Correa, uh, Lautaro Martinez and um, Romelu Lukaku, you know, and they, they're able to rotate them and and bring them off the bench. Lukaku came off the bench in the second leg and, and set up the goal for Martinez. And and between the four of those, those forwards, you know, they have a really potent attacking lineup, you know, and if we're looking for for any kind of uh, strands of hope um, from the Italian side in the final, I think that'll be that'll be that'll be up there for them. Um and then in the second leg, you know, they showed their control, you know, they showed they showed their ability to to keep AC Milan at arm's length. Now no one's, you know, I don't think claiming that this AC Milan team are a, are a, are a top level opponent. You know, they're after all their fifth in Serie A this season. Um but I still think it was impressive the way they managed that game. You know, there was a there was a sort of a, an early couple of chances for AC Milan. Brian Diaz had a, had a really good chance. And perhaps if they'd got that goal, goal early on, then maybe the kind of momentum would have swung. You never know. But after that, to be honest, there was a kind of an inevitability about, about the result. And, and Altaro Martinez scored a third in, in, late on. And that was that, really. Um, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's impressive. I think it's a great run from Inter. You know, I think they've been recovering, if you like, from the kind of Antonio Conte era. Um, they they've really pushed their finances to to breaking point to kind of win that scudetto and I think they've been recovering ever since essentially, and it speaks to the the job that Simone Inzaghi has done there. You know, I mean, he's done a he's done a brilliant job really to to steer this team. Um, you know, and it's a kind of aging, experienced, gnarly side. You know, Mkhitaryan's in there. Um, you know, a Serbi at the back, thirty five year old. You know, this is a kind of a Jeko, of course, thirty seven was absolutely key across the two games. And I think, you know, they go into the final with, with I don't know, I mean, I, I sort of feel they have nothing to lose. But equally, this is a group of players who who know kind of what it takes to to, to succeed in these one-off matches. Um, 
this isn't kind of a, a group of youngsters, you know, who are going to go and enjoy the day out in Istanbul. They'll go there because they know that essentially this is probably for a lot of them their last chance of winning a, a major piece of silverware. And I think that is powerful. You know, I, I, I don't expect them to win. I think City will win fairly comfortably. But, you know, I think Inter are a smart team. They're a good cup team. They've shown that in the last few years. Simone Inzaghi knows how to win these these knockout ties. Um and I think they'll probably do better than people think. I don't think they'll win, but I think they'll push City a little bit further than, than is widely expected. Ian, for you, what was the difference over the two legs between these two City rivals? Um, uh, well, um, Inter's, Inter's organisation, and, and I think um, it, it's, it's always very to, easy to say this when you start looking at the age differential, but their their experience and, and their, their savvy. And there were key things as well. Um, we spoke last week about how much Milan noticed the absence of Rafael Leal in the first leg. Um, and he was back for the second leg, but not not his match-winning self. Um, and um, Tom mentioned Acerbi. I, I thought Acerbi, the way Acerbi dealt with Olivier Giroud, who is who is not Erling Haaland, but, you know, he's a, he's a useful centre-forward and very important to the way Milan play. I thought he was, you know, the way Acerbi marshalled him across the legs was... Was was really key in in completely nullifying Milan, um, uh, and and, and you, you know they they Inzaghi knows what they can do well. Um, they've been, their set pieces are good as as any team with Chalanoglu in um, will have that asset. Um, Barella is is a is a genuinely close to world-class player, I think, in the midfield. And that, that midfield unit on its day, um, you know, has a nice balance and variety to it. They've, you know, they've, they've got a bit of pace out wide with DiMarco and, and Dumfries when Dumfries plays. And and Dzeko uh, uh, is exemplary, as Tom said, I thought, across both legs. Um, and, and, you know, they do have those options off the bench. But... Again, as as you pointed out, with the you know with the the general finances, uh, Lautaro, who was who was a constant menace in both legs, you know this is the guy who is second to Julian Alvarez in the Argentina hierarchy, and Julian Alvarez is you know an option off the bench for City. So that's the that's the scale difference you're looking at. Um, I noticed uh, one one Italian paper this morning asking if if Inter are the most second favourites, in other words, the least fancied Champions League finalists in the history of the Champions League. So that's going back 30-odd years. I think that's a little unfair, but yeah, I, um, I really think there's a absolute consensus that um, that City go into this, you know, absolutely far ahead as, as, as raging favourites to win. I, I totally agree with, with um, you know, everything that you guys have had to say, and it's an interesting point around Inter Milan. I, I do think there is an, a risk that people underestimate what they can produce. Um, they might be a cup team at the moment, but um, a pretty good one, very solid, very organised, experienced. And um, uh, they've been together for a while as well, which I think counts in terms of the characters and the spirit. So it will be tough for Manchester City. I don't see them, you know, look, it's a weird thing to say after they've completely destroyed uh, Real Madrid, but this will not be in the Etihad um they won't have a feeler game, you know, a week before to, to kind of get the, the match of their opposition. So I think Simone and Zaghi will have a plan and those players will give it just about everything. And, and although I expect Manchester City to win, 
Um, it could be a better final than some people are predicting. Fingers crossed anyway, because I think we'll come back to a lot of these conversations about City and um, and their success if they do sweep aside a team by massive margin in the final as well. Um, I know I didn't throw my two pennies in on, on most of what we've spoken about so far, but um, I didn't hear much that I disagreed with, just to put that in the podcast for good measure. Um, okay, listen, up next, we're going to talk about Ivan Tony and his eight-month ban um, after betting breaches from the FA, uh, which he will appeal. But um, an interesting conversation being had amongst fans. We'll also look ahead to the playoff final in the championship after last night's second semi-final second leg. All of that still to come. Remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, hit the notification button. You will not miss an episode. 
Um, I thought this. I thought the reaction to this was very, very interesting. So we had a few camps on this, which is what I wanted to broach with you guys. We had some essentially saying Ivan Tony knew the rules. This is the punishment, which is a pretty straightforward argument. There are others um, that said we need to wait until the written reasons come out to find out exactly why Ivan Tony's punishment is well substantial or so substantial in their views. Maybe it's not once we see the written reasons. And then there are others that were, and I think this is the most interesting point, maybe saying, hold on a second, football needs to take a look at its relationship with gambling and gambling companies. If Ivan Tony's wearing a shirt that has a betting sponsor on it, if he wins player of the month and he's handed an award which has a betting sponsor on it, then surely, and, and we know the in-game, you know, betting advertising, we know what's on television in terms of betting around at football matches, if we're going to have this relationship with gambling, we clearly don't think it's that big an issue. Why are we giving out substantial bans to players who breach the rules, which I guess is a, is another camp. So really, I wondered if there might be a fourth, fifth or sixth camp. But if you guys fall into any of those categories and what you feel about Ivan Tony's punishment here. Um, uh, the other thing I guess I think to mention is there are some saying, does this help Ivan Tony? If he has a gambling problem, shouldn't football be more human? Shouldn't it be able to extend its arm out to players who have gambled a lot and say there is some rehabilitation to find here rather than a straight punishment? So I guess I'm outlining four camps, if you like. Gregor, obviously you have had to undergo these rules, if you like, um, during your time as a player. Um, do you feel sympathy for Ivan Tony at all? I do, yes, because like I think there's a fifth camp, which is that the the rules are pretty daft. Um, <laughs> I, I I've always found it really quite remarkable that you know since moving into journalism, I I would say absolute with absolute certainty that there is greater inside knowledge in journalism than there is in professional football. Um, like most professional footballers don't care about other teams, and if they speak to other players, they they're not. They're not like they very, 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 very rarely learn anything about the opposition. Uh, clearly, you could, if if you're betting on your own team or anything to do with your own team, that's a different issue. But from what we what we've, we know so far, that's not been the case with with Ivan Tony. So, I think that the the rules are are draconian. Um, but Ivan Tony has no excuse because I've I sat in a in a dressing room every single summer for 15 years and the PFA visited and and outlined the current rules you know whether they've been whether they changed because they did change during the course of my career it used to be that you couldn't bet on anything any competition in which your team was involved then that obviously became a blanket ban on all football so and that even changed during the time that Ivan Tony has been a player so um but there is no excuse because that has been drummed home and I would be pretty certain that when they visited last summer, they would have pointed to Kieran Trippier or any of the other people who have been punished uh, recently for for breaking the rules, um, and said, "This is this is what can happen. You're risking a ban." Um, I, but look, everything else you've you've outlined, I completely agree with. I mean, football's relationship with with betting is you know deeply entangled and. It is, it is strange that a player who's playing with a betting, betting firm on his uh, shirt, who's who's you know the owner of the football club, uh, owns a, a company called Smart Odds. It is it is pretty 
uh, pretty strange place that a player can can yes break 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 rules, but really I'm not sure if there's any if there was any kind of anything underhand taking place in that. Um, and he loses eight months of his career. That's the other thing. It's, it seems it seems hugely disproportionate to me as well. So I have I have great sympathy for Ivan Tony. Kieran Trippier's ten week ban was for seven breaches, which he denied. Um, although they were different, They're, you've got to point out that that's uh, although he denied it, that was to do with insider information yeah. about. But we don't a ha- we don't move. have that's right. That, that, so that's one camp though. we don't have the written reasons as to exactly why Ivan Tony has been given such a substantial ban. And as he said, he won't make any further comment until those are revealed. So No, but clearly he denied, he, he, he denied several and he withdrew 30. So if there was anything to do with, his, uh, you know, betting on his own team or anything like that, or yeah. anything that's slightly more, that's definitely more serious, I would mm-hmm. suggest that it looks like he's denied it and they've withdrawn those those charges. So yeah, we, need, we do need to know. But, but bear in mind, 232 versus seven. So when you're saying that you think the ban is yeah, but substantial or, you know, draconian, whatever it might be, Trippier took a 10-week ban for seven. Ivan Tony here, we're looking at 232. For different things, clearly. If, I'm, if the, the written reasons show something different, but what we're being led to believe is not, it's not been insider information. It's been okay. a, a, a sustained, uh, you know, habit of betting on football and sometimes there'll be games in his league sometimes look if you if you if you bet in any game in which your team's involved i think you you, you probably deserve a ban but uh, and if that if that is shown to be the case then i will i'll uh, i'll change my my view here but if it's not then i think it's wildly disproportionate tom i mean i think it's um it's difficult to find anyone who really wins here i mean you know i, I think I, I do have sympathy for Tony. Um, you know, ultimately he's a you know, 27-year-old player who's now use, losing half, you know, a, a big chunk of what will be sort of you know the prime years of his career. Um, I think you know it's, it's bad news for for Brentford, of course. You know, he's a star player. Maybe they would have if they'd sold him. Maybe would have got you know 50 million or something this summer for him if they wanted to do that. It's bad news for England and Gareth Southgate. You know, there aren't many options there are up front. It's one of the only positions England sort of struggle in. Um, but I think also, you know, it's just, I, I, I do kind of agree with the argument that, that there's a real kind of, um, it's very, it's an incongruous kind of thing where you have a player like Tony who um, is being banned for this amount of time when the game is so happy to, as we know, just flood um, every corner of coverage of shirts of advertising hoardings there's you know barely a, anything you can you can watch or consume in, in football without being told about the importance of of betting on it and yet you know i mean i saw a, 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 an anti-gambling kind of campaign posting yesterday you know tony holding up a, a load of personal awards i think it was sort of player of the month or you know player of the year or things and, and every single one you know he was holding up the award with a with a gambling advert behind him. So how can how can the game expect these kind of young young players between the age of 20 and 30 to be so surrounded all the time by these by these adverts and by by gambling promotions and then be surprised and be outraged when occasionally you have someone getting involved themselves, you know, and I think do I think that the ban is is too much? I'm not sure. I, I you know I think Tony understands the rules and and 
and they are there, you know, and I have sympathy for him, but equally, I think, you know, it's important that the punishments are dealt out. The problem I have is it, it seems to me slightly two-faced for football to be so stringent on one individual and yet so soft on the, the culture in the game generally. And I think, you know, I think that's been pointed out. And I think it's important that going forward, we've said this many times that the relationship of gambling and football is, is, is corrected and improved in the future. Ian, your view on, on the whole situation. Um, I, I, maybe I should underline my point and, and get you to respond to it because I, I feel like some of the reaction has um, babied Ivan Tony or made it look like he was kind of helpless, dragged into this. I don't know his situation with gambling. Those of us that have gambled, I have. I used to work for a, in, in a betting shop when I was younger. Um, you know, 232 bets is something that you can amass in a very short space of time if you want to bet every weekend on football. You know, it, gambling addiction, it, that could be an addiction. I don't know how much money Ivan Tony was spending, but obviously others with a gambling addiction or have, have that history or know that history um, would know that there are also other factors that, that go into it. And I, like I say, I don't know the state that Ivan Tony is in. Maybe there is an addiction there. We haven't heard that from him or his camp. And I'm, I'm you know, on the basis of his ability to go out and play every week at his highest level. Um, you know, we, we, we haven't seen anything from the outside that would seem massively detrimental. But there you go. I, I do think rehabilitation is an important point. But I do think the conversation around the football's relationship with gambling, certainly, in my opinion, you know, would pertain more to fans than it would to players because millions of us, <laughs> most players, but millions of us as well, are, are able to resist the temptation of these adverts. And and I know that the temptation is strong for those people that have been through that addiction. You know, they have spoken about, they have campaigned against the level of advertising and gambling that we have. But some of the reaction for me has been too far in terms of the, like I say, the idea that, that Ivan Tony was helpless, that if every club was sponsored by a yogurt company, he would be a yogurt addict. Or that if it was sponsored by a holiday company, he would be jetting off every week somewhere. Like he just couldn't help himself. Like I get it. We all want to see Ivan Tony play out there on the pitch. All of us, many of us think that an eight month ban is something that is either unfair or probably more detrimental to Ivan Tony, his mental health, his physical health, um, his career than actually what he's done um, warrants. I, I can understand those arguments, but I feel like we were wading into the territory of removing all fault from Ivan Tony when he knew the rules, he knew what the punishment might be. None of us is going to sit here and say someone who shoplifts 232 times doesn't deserve any punishment under the law. Why not? Well, there are shops everywhere. Well, you know, I, I get that. I get it. There's temptation if you're a kleptomaniac to go and steal stuff, but you need to take some responsibility and Ivan Tony, I'm not, I'm not saying again, I'm not saying that Ivan Tony is an addict in any way. I don't know him. I don't know his background. I don't know his history. But what I'm saying is clearly, even though there is temptation, he has to take responsibility for his actions. And if this is the outcome, this is the outcome. Um, yes. I mean, there's 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 two different uh, safeguarding aspects to this, aren't there? That there's, there's football and society's responsibility to um to care for for people who have an addiction and that's a really very important responsibility and yes of course when you when you see how deeply entrenched um football is with the gambling industry you cannot help but think 
you know, are, are, is enough safeguarding being done? Are people protected enough? Um, the second thing, which is why punishments that look exemplary um, are put out there, and, and you know, this this is designed to be in part exemplary. This this penalty against Ivan Tony is is to is to safeguard the integrity of the sport, and that is that is very very important. And all English football needs to do is is look at how the reputation of Italian football deteriorated to do with um, partly gambling and then, you know, systemic uh, match manipulation, some of which was directly tied up with gambling um, and, and, and see the damage that does long term to, to people's belief in the, in the sport and pe people's trust in it. And with that, you know, all the, all the benefits that come with it, the, the wealth in the game and so on. Um, so you know you can understand why why English football needs to think needs to present itself as absolutely uncorruptible, um, and that every match is played fairly, and that nobody anywhere near the pitch is vulnerable um, to being to being influenced um, in a way that would affect the integrity of the sport. But but yeah, the the, the other thing is is. It, it's very easy to see the hypocrisy that if we if if we care enough about gambling addiction, we really shouldn't riddle the sport with with so much of a betting company's influence. How big a blow is this for Ivan Tony's career? Um, we got the Euros coming up next summer. He had a very decent chance of being involved in that squad. Um, he now won't be playing until January the seventeenth, unless his appeal obviously um, is successful and his his ban is shortened. Um, he can't train, Gregor. I guess that's an interesting point as well. He can't train with his teammates until September the 17th. So could this end up, even though it's an eight-month ban, taking a huge wedge out of Ivan Tony's ability to perform at his highest level over the next season, maybe longer? What do you, what do you think? No, I mean, I think that um, Brentford and Tony will be smart enough to make sure that he's... He's kept a good condition until September. It's it's extraordinary. He's not allowed in a football stadium until then. It's like I found that weird. I I'd like someone to. Sorry, I'd like someone to explain to me what you know. I I, I come back to it. I know I know that um, if any footballer bets on any game in which they're involved, it's like that's that's a, that's that's a no go. That should never be. Like you should be punished for that. Absolutely. I don't know what people think that footballers can do that anyone else can't outside that involve in terms of voting. Uh, sorry, in terms of uh, betting on like competitions in which they're not involved or other leagues or anything like that. I don't understand. They think there's this bad, this incredible network of information that's been passed to and fro with the aim of 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 uh, <laughs> of upsetting the, the book, bookmakers' odds. I don't. I've never seen it. The one time I ever saw it was. Um, when Accrington Stanley, the, there was a, a number of players were punished heavily for for throwing a game at the end of the season. I remember turning up to uh, the team coach uh, on the morning of that game, and lots of lots of players were saying, apparently everyone should get on this game. Like it, it, it <laughs> I didn't do it just for the record, <laughs> but like it, it doesn't work. You get no one is no one is is smart enough to. To keep it within a you know a, 
to keep the information in 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 their own uh, into a small enough group and for book and bookmakers are clever enough now. They how how do they, how do players keep getting found out? It's not I I I cannot see what the what the threat of footballers betting on football that's something out with their their kind of close sphere. I cannot see what the, what the threat of that is. And look, that completely bypasses the the whole discussion about football's the industry's relationship with betting. I know that's a that's another topic of conversation. But I I look at the rules and think that they are excessive. Uh, what should football's relationship with betting be? I guess we'll end on on this point. Um, we as journalists. Um, you know, m- much of my career obviously has advertising around it. Many betting companies pay for that advertising. They pay for sponsorship on the radio show that I, I present as well. Um, it, I, I don't see it as a moral dilemma gen- um, generally because there is a part of me that thinks, well, the industry that I'm in is paid for largely by this. Um, and that's a point that you have to take on board. I mean, football is largely paid for. People will say, oh, it's paid for by broadcasters and it is paid for by broadcasters. But where the broadcasters get their money, well, they get it from advertising. And again, around football, much of their advertisements involve gambling. So the sport that we have is kind of predicated on gambling being involved. So if it's removed, um, you know, I imagine given the size and scale of Premier League football in particular, there will be other sponsors queuing up or other advertisers queuing up to, to get their brands associated with it. But at this point in time, you know, gambling is prepared to put in a huge wedge of money um, to be associated with the game. And they obviously get lots of that money back through gambling. That's kind of how it works. They get their money through us placing bets. They use it on marketing so that you come back and place more bets. But obviously that marketing is advertising revenue that goes to broadcasters, that goes into football. And that's the reason that I find it, it's a, it's a difficult thing because you know people are struggling with it. But ultimately, you know that your sector is funded through this advertisement and largely through these companies. And that's why it's, a, it's not, a, you know, I say it's not a difficult moral dilemma. It's not great. But, you you know, if it was a huge moral dilemma, I would I'd have to go and work in another industry. And I've clearly made my choice. So I, I do find it difficult when people say, you know, like Klopp, for example, might rage at the broadcasters. Why have you put the games on at this time? The broadcasters are trying to get the most viewers. More viewers equals them going to advertisers and saying we should be charging you more because there are more eyes on the product. That's the ecosystem of this sport. It isn't just about the football. And so, yes, I think the relationship can be different. We certainly around live games, what you're seeing when you're sitting on your sofa, the amount of advertisements that you have and the amount of kind of live odds that are given to you during a game, that certainly needs to change. For me, in a stadium where there are children um, on the fronts of shirts, I think that can that can also be um, something that we take a look at because ultimately you're looking up to your heroes. You're seeing whoever it might be, Ivan Tony with a with a you know, a betting company on the front of his shirt. You then ask your parents to buy you that shirt for Christmas. You then adorn it, you know, if you're big enough to fit into an adult size shirt, if you're in your teenage years and whatnot. And you do associate these brands with the thing that you love the most, which is football and the players that you watch. So I can totally understand that. But in terms of our sector, like I said, it's funded through gambling. Um, and that, that for me just is what it is currently. If anyone wants to come back at me on that, the floor is yours. Well, it's it, we've been rather circular. I mean, you say you say you know if 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 
uh, gambling companies were prevented from having such high profile sponsorship, other industries would come in. Um, I'm not sure if that is how um, football clubs generally look at it. Um, uh, you know, we started this discussion by talking about the ethics of, of Manchester City's funding and we're ending it talking about the ethics of really en masse the, you know, the principal stadium and shirt sponsor that there is certainly in England at the moment. So, um, yes, it, 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 it would be it would be nice if football could remove itself from this very, very explicit uh, relationship because um, gambling is a very dangerous thing for a large number of people. Um, but, but, uh, but I'm not sure if, if, if your idea that, that, you know, there's, there's, there's another easily accessible channel of benevolent uh, financing for a game, which is very addicted to money um, is, a, is around the corner. Yeah, I was just going to say that it's that addiction to money, which really is at the the root of it. A lot of when you were when you were kind of speaking there, here a lot of the time I was thinking, is it would it be so bad if there was a little bit less money in football? Um, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know the answer to that because it's it's a difficult one. I guess it it's it's not just foot, the foot, football industry itself; it's the associated industries of which we are one. Uh, so I I completely understand that a great a great uh, swathe of of revenue comes from from betting companies in that in that in that that industry. So, but in football itself, I think football I think football could quite easily say no to gambling. Uh, it would be more difficult for for us. Tom, I mean it's not like this in 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 every country. I mean, I, from my personal experience in Spain, I don't know what how Ian would whether he would agree, but if you if you watch football in Spain, you don't have the same level of of um, of, of gambling advertising everywhere, and and obviously in other sports as well, it's not the same. You know, there are other sports where where, where you don't have this. It, it's very much an English football thing, and and it's obviously difficult to unstitch. You know, it is difficult when you get to this point. It's difficult then to remove. You know, you're kind of looking at it from the almost the wrong way around. Um, but that's not to say that it's not possible. I think to to, to to add more balance. I mean, you know, the Premier League has already um, put a ban on on front of shirt sponsorship. I think in, in terms of of gambling advertising, which is obviously a, a good step. And I think there are more of those kind of steps that can be taken. It's not to say that there isn't there isn't a space for gambling advertising and, and for, for gambling in in football. Um, I take Hugh's point. You know that it does provide a lot of revenue, but it, it is also part of this wider debate where football generally and particularly English football has put such a premium on money from whatever source it comes from and such a low premium on the ethics of where the money comes from. This is where we end up. You know, it's obviously a, a, a point in, in terms of ownership, but it's, it applies here in, in this in this discussion as well. You know, if you take any money, as much money and from wherever the money comes from as possible, then this is where you end up. Um, and yes, I think it would be a better a better game if there was less money. Um, and I think the authorities have a responsibility to ensure that it, that it comes from the right places. So I think I think it is doable. You you, you reduce it, you, you add some balance. Um, but it, whether it's whether it's possible now because we've gone so far down the line, like like the same with the ownership debate, that it is difficult to to take the step back. It's been a philosophical episode of the game podcast. I think much for us 
all to mull over. Um, hopefully you've enjoyed listening to it. It's not over just yet, but we are saying goodbye to Tom Allnut and Ian Hawkey. Thank you very much for being with us because up next, uh, Gregor and I will be very quickly dissecting the outcomes of the championship playoff semi-finals. Either Coventry or Luton are headed to the Premier League. Stay with us. So just before we leave you, uh, Gregor and I, a couple of episodes ago, I think, looked ahead to the championship playoff semi-finals. And we now know who will be facing off at Wembley Saturday, May the 27th for a place in the Premier League. And this one just has subplots and stories pouring out of it. It's going to be amazing to see Wembley on the day as Luton Town and Coventry City go head to head. Coventry City, of course, haven't been in the Premier League since 2001. I actually thought it was a lot longer than that. They, of course, were a mainstay in the top flight of English football for a good half a century before that. Um, It would be amazing to see Mark Robbins and the Sky Blues back in the top flight, but maybe even more so to see Rob Edwards and Luton Town, who were a non-league team a decade ago, come to the Premier League at Kenilworth Road, absolutely bouncing. Um, They beat Sunderland two goals to nil in the second leg to turn around a 2-1 deficit from the first leg. And last night, um, Coventry City went to Middlesbrough and scored the only goal of the tie through Gustavo Hamer to book their place at Wembley. And it will be an incredibly tough final because the two matches between Coventry and Luton, a two-all draw and a one-all draw during the regular season. Um, very, I think, it will be a very low-scoring affair. Anyway, we'll look ahead to it in a few moments' time. But let's quickly look back on the two legs of the semi-final, Gregor. Because it was last night, let's start with Coventry, who I thought, and I hate to say it, because they have so many great attacking players at Middlesbrough, Cameron Archer, Tuba Akpom, who was the player of the season, top scorer as well. Uh, Riley McGree, uh, Marcus Force played in the game last night as well. But they were completely constrained, aggressively constrained by the likes of Carl McFadzeen, uh, Callum Doyle in, in the Coventry defence. They did not get room to breathe. And Victor Jokeres speaking to Sky at the end of the, the match, I think he nailed it. He basically said, we knew it was going to be about the team who wanted it more and we wanted it more. It felt like Middlesbrough maybe run out of steam, ending the season five matches without a victory. Yeah, they had they had their chances in the first first leg. I was at that game at the um, at the CBS Arena, as it's now called, and um, Akbom had a great chance in the um, in the first half. Uh, they had a goal chalked off for very marginal offside. Um, and then, in, as you say, in the second half, you know, actually, as in that first leg as well, Coventry really grew into the second half and sort of got the measure of Middlesbrough. And they, you know, accepted that well, Middlesbrough were going to dominate possession. They they had to they couldn't just sit in and be content to kind of to to sit deep the whole game. They had to be aggressive, as you say, and that's what they have been all season. And you know, I remember watching this, watching both games and thinking, you know, after the first game, thinking Luton. Luton uh, are going to take some beating because they're really kind of obdurate and great at set pieces. Uh, and I, I sort of envisaged them playing Middlesbrough in the final. I just, you know, Middlesbrough were the favourites and they, they, you know, dominate possession. You felt that they would, they had, they'd never drawn a blank under Michael Carrick at, at, at the Riverside either all season. So you felt that, you know, possibly the odds were in their favour. Now they're, now it's a match of against Coventry. It's like, it's impossible to call, not just for all the storylines you've, 
you've you've alluded to there, but just because of this is a team that uh, Coventry's goalkeeper uh, Ben Wilson kept, I think, twenty clean sheets during the regular uh, season, and Luton had the best defence after Burnley. So you're right in saying it's probably going to be an edgy affair, but uh, we saw in the second leg leg what what Coventry are capable of in terms of you know, ag- aggressive defending, but also you know, real solidity and a threat with with Giocares on the counter and players like like uh, Hamer who have who are capable of producing a moment of brilliance that that could be the difference. And how often are playoff finals just decided by either an error or you know a one off moment and dealing with the pressure on the day. There is a part of me that wanted to reflect on Michael Carrick's future. Um, it's an interesting one with the EFL, obviously, because lots of teams all the way through can have a great season. I think MK Dons is an example of that. You lose your best players. They they were third last year. They missed out on automatic promotion by a point and they were relegated this season. You know, losing your best players can be massively detrimental to sides in the EFL. Lots of players come on loan and they have a big impact, but also there aren't, you know, everyone is not sitting on a five-year deal with a, an added year, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there is a, a higher turnover of players you lose that fluidity. Obviously, we know there's a high turnover of manager as well. Um, and I, I wonder whether this was a big missed opportunity for Middlesbrough because Carrick's been linked to the likes of Crystal Palace and maybe he would find it difficult to turn down a Premier League job. Um, he's had a great start to his career, but again, you know, he, he, Cameron Archer on loan from Aston Villa, great impact. Aaron Ramsey on loan as well had a great impact for the club. You know, you lose some of your key players, it can be a very difficult second season and managers like to strike while the iron is hot so essentially Gregor should he be committing his future to Borough are they the kind of club that now that he's got something started you think can still get promoted next season yeah I think so I mean like I, I agree that you know most it's the same same is true of Coventry they've got a lot of, of loanees as well who are, have been really important for them this season and Ryan Giles another one the Wolves left back who whose future probably isn't at the Riverside so um there will be turnover, but there's turnover that creates opportunity as well. And I'm, I'm sure that Michael Carrick, with his name and with the football, most importantly, that they've been playing, it's like that's a real attraction for Premier League managers and clubs when it comes to sending out their best players on loan to the to the second tier. They want to go, want them to go somewhere that you know plays a certain style of football very often. And Michael Carrick has shown in the transformation that he's that he's uh, overseen at uh, at Middlesbrough. That is kind of he's got very clearly defined principles. Uh, he plays really, you know, really attacking and sort of expansive, dominant style of play. And um, so I think you know I, I'd like to see him stay and and try and you know over the course of a full season. We have to remember, yes, they've they've fallen away recently when it became clear that Sheffield United were going to you know they weren't going to be catchable in in second. But we have to remember that during you know until the, those last five or six games. And from Carrick's first game until then, they were as good as Burnley, you know. So over the course of a season, I would I would think that with a little bit of of support by by Steve Gibson, the owner, um, he's capable of putting together a side that that can challenge for the title. Very quickly, when it comes to Luton and Sunderland, I guess the big story for Sunderland is reports that Tony Mowbray could lose his job after their sixth place finish. There was they are another side with a raft of quality loanees at the moment. But then the job that Rob Edwards has done with Luton Town to take them to Wembley, having been sacked by Watford earlier on in the campaign, uh, he got 
Forrest Green promoted in his rookie season last season from League Two into League One, left for Watford, uh, ended the season at Luton having replaced Nathan Jones, and now is on his way 90 minutes from a place in the Premier League. So it'd be a pretty meteoric rise. Um, Mowbray, of course, the old campaigner. So what, what for these two managers' futures? And um, can Luton get the job done? What do you think on this? Well, I think it's just it's absolutely nuts that Mowbray's future is in, in question. And clearly, he feels that way, which is why he, he spoke the way he did in the, the post-match uh, sort of press conference. He was saying, we'll see what happens, what's you know what lies in store next season with regards to my future and because there there had been links to 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 replacements um earlier this season you know which i as i say seems bizarre to me because what he's done there is has kind of re-energized individuals and and a team and you know, they were on an upward trajectory under alex neil but he's he kind of taken them forward another big step and so there's no question in my eyes whether he should be sunderland manager or not um and Rob Edwards is, a, is just a, a brilliant story. After what he uh, experienced at Watford at the start of the season, you know, Watford are Luton's great rivals as well. There's some kind of, I'm sure there's a, a nice uh, serendipity you know, to it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and he's done brilliantly. He, he's as he said, he's not. He didn't want to change too much, but he 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 kind of. I think he's made them a little bit more. Um, you know, they, they were direct under under Nathan Jones. They they changed. They they were they played a kind of dominant, expansive style in in uh, in League One and League Two, um, and in in the Championship in the early early time in the Championship. But Nathan Jones kind of changed that, and I don't think Rob Edwards has done a lot to sort of upset the apple car, as, as he said. And you know, they've been so good defensively, so aggressive. Their home form's been really important. McKenny was absolutely rocking, and I think it's. It's kind of a little bit thrilling, actually, to think of Kenilworth Road hosting Premier League football next season. Um, but all the storylines that you alluded to just make this a magnificent final because what it's a kind of reward for faith, the faith of supporters as well, you know, for what the two clubs have been through. Luton being docked 30 points back in, I think, 2009 10, uh, you know, as you say, falling out of the, the Football League altogether. And their rise, um, so really, I think they've probably been one of the best-run clubs in the country for about a decade now. We are talking about betting earlier. They're, they were the first club to issue betting uh, sponsorship in any form. Uh, they were the first club to uh, employ the living wage for their staff. You know, they've got they've got principles as well, and they've tried to do a lot for the, the community in, in, in Luton, which is obviously not, not very affluent. Uh, affluent. And Coventry, I've just been through more probably than any any other football club in recent years. It's kind of unprecedented stuff, you know, playing away in first in uh, in Northampton at Six Fields, being homeless again, playing in in Birmingham at St Andrews, um, and Mark Robbins throughout just being a figure of absolute kind of solidity and calm and. Never flustered by it, even with the start of the season when they they couldn't play at their home fixtures because there'd been a rugby tournament on it over the summer. It's just you couldn't write it really. And as as you said at the start, two teams who in 2018 finished second and sixth in League Two are now 90 minutes away from the Premier League. Brilliant. That is is amazing. That is amazing. Five years ago from promotion 
from League Two. Penny for the thoughts of Accrington Stanley, who I think won the title that season. I think they were relegated, <laughs> relegated back to League Two this season, I think. Um, so there you have it. Um, but yeah, look, uh, an amazing story and some way to go. We'll, of course, look ahead to that final in some more detail when we get to it, as well as the League One and League Two uh, finals when we get to the bank holiday weekend as well. But just a remarkable performance throughout the season from Luton and Coventry. And the only sad thing is one of them's going to have to be a loser on the day because they've been magnificent. Um, but yes, listen, those of you that are EFL fans, thank you for listening. Thank you for staying on for that. And thank you all for listening to the podcast. We're going to have another big weekend of football to react to on Monday. Make sure you join us for that. Remember, the game's out each and every Monday, so make sure you pick up a copy of the Times newspaper. You can also uh, download the Times app online uh, wherever you get your apps from. And of course, it's available online at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Monday. Enjoy the weekend. Take care. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.